0: Yeah, I'm in. Let's do it. The vast majority, in my opinion, of making a great portfolio is deal flow and quality of deal flow. And that's where the Andreessens, the Sequoias, the Benchmarks, the Index, all these guys, right? Their reputation precedes them. And that is their marketing, right? It's word of mouth, which is the best kind. And so they see the best deals. So I could almost guarantee you, if you took the qualified deal flow that Andreessen has, and you took those same deals and you handed it to a fund manager in Colorado that never would have seen those deals. And you let that fund manager in Colorado pick which ones he thought would be the winner, guarantee you he'd make a pretty darn good portfolio just because of the quality of the companies, right? So to your point about marketing, I, I do believe that it's it's more about marketing than it is about finance. You know, it's, it's about getting into good deals and the good deals will make themselves, right? It's not, there's, there's not some magic sauce, you know, like you, you, you need to be able to differentiate, like, don't don't get me wrong. You got to be able to tell if a deal is a bad deal, but when you see just lots of good deals, it's much easier to do it. Right. So the game is harder for small unknown funds because they got to filter through a lot more unqualified stuff that they don't know if it's unqualified.
1: For this episode of Startup Garage, we have with us Jesse Randall, founder and CEO of Sweater which is a non-traditional venture capital fund. And we will find out how in this episode. Jesse has started companies in the past and also works with various startups on their fundraising and growth. You have started businesses and you have worked with various startups. Can you, uh, to start off, can you talk more about your initial days, your pre-Sweather days, because we'll come back to that. Uh, so how, how did you start? Where have Where all have you been?
0: Jeez, go back to my childhood. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think I, I, didn't, I didn't understand what entrepreneurship was until I was about 24. Um, and I had, I had the opportunity to go do an internship in Brussels, Belgium. And it was totally on a whim. Uh, I, I ended up getting hired for this company, uh, very small company, and they paid just enough to cover my expenses. And that's all I wanted. I was recently married, my wife and I went over there. And it was this amazing family. So they were an Israeli family living in Brussels and they ran about six businesses and none of their clients were inside Europe. So all their clients were international and all their businesses were framed around this idea of helping people break into the European market. And they, so as an intern there, they just had me working on all these businesses and I absolutely fell in love with it. And I just thought, I, I didn't know you could even do this. I thought you had to like be a doctor or you know, like go work for Microsoft. Like that's how you build a career. So these guys were making great money and they, they had a lot of freedom and you know, it was just amazing to me. So I kind of stumbled into it by being exposed there. And then I had the bug and I started building companies after that. So um, I, my first one, I came out of that, that was back in like 2007, started a business out of that, got totally crushed by the 2008 financial crisis. Didn't realize I was building a, uh, I guess a premium product <laughs> that was tied to labor. And so it totally got crushed. Um, and then decided to go and get my MBA at the Thunderbird School of Global Management um, with the idea that I was going to go to corporate. And I told myself to stay away from startups. And I lasted about six months before I got myself involved in another one, which was great. I ended up winning some some competitions and I, I got a, a grant from a big environmental consulting firm to go after it. Um, and I just bit off more than I can chew. And then I ended up getting hired by a micro VC fund and an accelerator after that. And that's where I really started honing in my ability to work with a lot of companies. So since then, I've worked with about 200 companies uh, across basically every industry um, and with every business model and technology set you can imagine. Uh, and I, I love it. So I've, I've worked. I've, I've been on all sides of the table. I've been the entrepreneur. I've been the middleman as, a, as a, an accelerator preparing companies. I've been on the venture side, uh, looking at it from that perspective and, and how they're looking to be critical. Um, and I've worked inside other companies as well to help them raise money. And that, that's, that all led to my passion for startups and, and kind of wanting to help reshape the way that venture works, which is what led me to Sweater.
1: Awesome. So um, Jesse, your recent company, Sweater, you also run, uh, parallelly. you run Divine Strategy, right? Um, and mm-hmm. you say that at Divine Strategy, you help startups deviate from overhyped processes. Uh, so, <laughs> what are what are these processes you talk about? <laughs> yeah, well, I think there's
0: my my main point in Deviant is is really that there's there's more than one way to build a company. Everyone hears about the high growth route, and that you know to be considered a successful entrepreneur, that you have to go down that very specific path. And I, I just don't think that's true. I mean, A, there's, there are a lot of ways to be a founder and be an entrepreneur and build financial freedom and economic freedom for yourself. And so when I, when I work with founders, I always am true to understanding where they're at and what they really want, right? To help them go down a path that is right for them. And, and that fits their business because not every business idea is really qualified to be a high growth entity, you know? And, and to be venture backed. And I've seen a lot of startups that kind of get destroyed because they try to turn it into that when it never should have been that in the first place. So I, I have a lot of passion about helping uh, entrepreneurs find that, that true level that they're really on and finding peace with that and happiness with it. But then even if they do qualify for this high growth route, there are so many ways you can go about it. The, the timing um, and the path you take, especially in your first 12 to 24 months, there are a lot of options. Um, And I always, always um, side on the side of the, uh, of the entrepreneur, like what, what is best for the founder really? And, and what is going to help them find success and keep as much money in their pocket as they can, um, you know, and, and have, and be able to build a business in the way that they want to without losing control. Uh, And so I, I like to focus on those things and really help founders to discover the right path because you really only hear about one or two paths, right? And it's like, you know, start your idea, go raise money and then grow as fast as possible. You know That's like the, the basic, but there's so much more to it. Um, and, and so I really enjoy working with founders to help them discover
1: that. That's that's really cool. Also, Jesse, I wanna know, so uh, since you mentioned that there are more than one companies, more than one ways to build a company, and um, essentially uh, there is a, a cliche route to building startups, especially uh, in, in the entrepreneurial hubs in, in across the world. Um, So at Deviant, uh, do you specifically work around uh, how much capital to raise and how much capital to burn, uh, sort of this growth strategy, or is it also more centered around um, more more fundamental questions like what does a startup need to build and do they need to go after a particular market or not, do they need to be as big, because what I'm seeing these days is every startup wants to do a lot of things, and uh, they want to be everything for everyone, which essentially you cannot be right, so Is it more, uh, so uh, at Deviant, do you also work around um, market strategies, GDM, or do you specifically focus on uh, funding and uh, customer acquisition?
0: Yeah, excellent question. I mean, I'd say I've worked on just about all elements. It really depends on what the founder needs and and where, you know, where they're trying to advance the business. Um, You know, I've, I would say that, A, I, I always have an open door right? I, I love talking to founders just to talk to founders, right? I, I one, one of my biggest pet peeves are consultants that are just in it to be sharks in the water and to just take money from startups i or, or equity, right? I, I despise it. It's It's probably one of the things that makes me more upset in the startup community than anything else is just this notion that, well, yeah, you know, if you pay me $5,000 a month and give me, you know, three points of equity, I'll help get your business off the ground. And I've always hated that. So first of all, like I, I suppose it depends on what the, what the founder needs, right? So I'm always up for talking and trying to point people in the right direction. So where people end up um, engaging with me to really dive in deeper is more on that, that more complex, the financial modeling, the go-to-market strategies, you know, figuring out how to put together pitch decks and, and articulate the business in a way that, that investors will understand because there's a lot of value to be had there. But I still work with lots of founders on the other side and I volunteer a lot to help them you know, figure out their path. So I think it kind of depends, but I, I am a nerd. I, I love Excel. I, I will spend all day in Excel taking your, your business and your strategy and articulating it into numbers um, and, and trying to, to predict what that future could look like. And I, I could talk about that all day, but that's I have a lot of passion.
1: There. That's awesome. Um, An interesting thing that I have heard a lot of uh, mature investors talk about these days is building for investors versus building for um, users. Mm-hmm. I think Paul Graham mm-hmm. talks about it a lot. And um, oh, yeah. I want to know your thoughts on that. Like, since we, we talked about these overhype processes, I think somehow this these connect to um, the founder's ideology of building for raising money, um, taking it as the end instead of the means. So what are your thoughts mm-hmm. on that?
0: Oh, yeah, I totally agree. And uh, yeah, Paul Graham has talked about that a lot. You know, I was actually just discussing this very topic yesterday with with another founder and, uh, you know, it, it's interesting because at the end of the day, the value you create is for your customers, right? So you have to build a product that they want. And, and a mistake that that you're alluding to, right, that founders make all the time is they they build and frame their company around what they think investors want. And so they're, they're presenting their business and their, their product and the, the problem they want to solve to investors. Rather than than trying to figure out what their customer really wants. And they can burn a lot of time, precious time and resources, trying to figure out that story. And then even if they do get funded, when they go back to their market, they may have it wrong, which is just eternally frustrating. You know, it's like raising money is a full time job and engaging with with investors is really full time work. It just takes so much effort. And I tell founders all the time, like, well, what if you took the six months that you would spend, you know, where it's at least 50 to 70% of your mind share is going towards trying to build stuff for investors. And you took all that time and you just went to your customers. You try to sell something. Like, even if you don't have the software built yet, like just try to sell a consulting service that solves the same problem, right? Like, like get in the door, build relationships, get to know that problem at a much deeper level and become a true world-class expert at it you'll make some money along the way, you'll build a lot of credibility and you'll actually find something that they want instead of guessing what they want, right? And when you when you create that and you have that, the story to tell investors is easy, right? And I think that that's where you know most founders have a hard time with with telling an investor story is that they're trying to tell that story too early. And so it takes so much effort to try to find someone that's willing to write a check when you haven't done anything. And I've felt that pain, I've made that mistake before. So I, I, I do totally agree with that. And uh, it takes, it's tempting to go talk to investors because you know it's like, well, if I can just get a $500,000 check, imagine the things I could do. Yeah. you know, and, and then I would say, well, and, and what if you waste six months of your life and you burn all your personal resources and you don't get a check, then what's that worth?
1: That's true, that's true. Next, I want to uh, segue into talking about Sweater. So firstly, what's the story behind the name? <laughs>
0: <laughs> everybody asks me that you know what just the just the fact that you had to ask me that question means that you remember first of all That's and <laughs> secondly yeah i mean it creates so like a good rule of thumb in marketing you know someone's got to see your message eight to ten times before they'll actually start recognizing and remembering it right yeah so with a unique name if someone has to ask that question, they're gonna remember me in two to four times instead of eight to 10, right? So That's true. my cycle there is a lot tighter. It's also a very um, common article of clothing that we that we see a lot. And we talk about sweaters, you see sweater everywhere. So there's triggers throughout your natural life everywhere you go. Every time you go to put on a sweatshirt or a sweater or you hear about an ugly sweater contest or party, I want you to think about sweater. I want you to think about me, right? Um, and on top of that, there's actually tons of fun stuff you can do with the marketing itself, right? Um, I mean, you know, like uh, if, if you ever see inside some of these VC offices, you know, they'll, they'll put the logos of their companies up on the wall. Yeah. So we're gonna do like custom ugly sweaters with the company <laughs> logo on every one, and we're gonna hang those on the wall, right? When you have five thousand dollars under management with us, we're gonna have this this whole you know secret vault that you can go into, and you can pick a sweater that's branded that you want to wear, right? And you know, like we can put sweaters on statues, and we can you know make funny videos with people wearing ugly sweaters i mean it's just so much fun right you yeah, can make it yeah. it kind of breaks down this barrier of finance and investing being stiff and yeah. formal and for the elite and making it common and normal and approachable
1: that's kind of really cool <laughs> you can do you can do so that's brilliant marketing actually <laughs> so this, oh, thank you. this yeah this takes me to the next question um, for our audiences can you talk a bit more about um, the story behind the idea of sweater, what is the purpose, what, uh, what do you want to achieve with sweater? And um, the next question is, how did you come about this idea? Was there some sort of uh, revelation that you came about that you stumbled upon? So can you talk a bit more about that?
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. So I'll give you the quick pitch. So um, sweater's objective, we, we are creating a venture capital fund that anyone can put money into. So the background there is in in traditional VC funds, like you see Andreessen Horowitz or Sequoia or Benchmark or Index, like these big funds, you and I can't put money in those funds. Uh, You have to be an accredited or qualified investor, and you have to be able to write a check that's at least a half a million dollars. Um, And if you want to get in those big funds, I mean, you're writing checks that are way bigger than that, right? Those are very exclusive. So we're we're basically all locked out, right? And it's this asset class that has the highest growth, highest potential companies in the world are venture-backed. And you and I can't get into those until they go public, if they ever go public, right? Um, so all that growth that's happening between day one and the day they go public is all captured by private, mostly VC investors. So, um, you know, our, our objective is to be able to deliver that experience to every regular person that has an interest in the space. So our, you know, our, our example is, you know, as it's, it's if everyone was, uh, I don't know, your audience is mostly in India, right? So it's like if, uh, you know, everyone is at home watching the cricket game on television, right? But our proposition is we want to take you to the stadium, we want to put you at midfield, and we want to say you're a part owner in that team that's playing, right? That's the experience we want to give people is bring them right into the middle of that experience and let them be a part of it. Because most people just don't even realize that you can't put money there. So we're delivering it as a mobile app, kind of like Robinhood, um, where you'll be able to put in money up front. Um, and also be able to subscribe and grow your position on a monthly basis. Um, and as you do that, then we take that money and we go and invest into startups and we invest alongside other venture capital funds. And then we report back on all those companies through the app, right? And give you all the updates of all the companies that you're a part owner in and give you that full experience. Um, so that's that's the quick pitch. Um, yeah. You know, we, we stumbled into it. Because um, I actually went out to raise uh, just a traditional venture fund. This was like two and a half years ago. Um, I was living in Arizona at the time. It really just doesn't have a good capital ecosystem. And I saw an opportunity and thought, you know, we, we could probably do this. And as we started getting into it, you know, you, I immediately, you immediately run into these um, regulations that say you have to be accredited or qualified. And I, I knew that. I mean, I've I worked in the space for seven or eight years. I knew that. But the more that I confronted it, the more it bothered me. And I started asking why, like, why, why is that really? You know, like I'm not a dumb person. So why couldn't I put money into a VC fund? I know this space, right? I know lots of people that know this space and it's actually a better investment than putting money directly into a company. Because if you, you, know, if you follow the math on that, if you're an angel investor, they say you need to make at least 30 investments in order for you to play the game right. Because if you only make five, your probability of losing all your money is really high. And the same thing with 10 or 15, but you get up to 30 and you actually have a really good portfolio. But people don't do that, right? If, if they go to uh, an equity crowdfunding platform like Republic or Seed Invest, uh, you know, or, or whatever, most people only make a couple of investments, right? So, but you put money into a fund, and that fund is gonna go out and invest in dozens of companies. So you automatically get that diversification. You also don't have to um, do the due diligence yourself. You don't have to go find your own deals. You don't have to decide whether or not a company is you know, in good standing. You don't have to do any of that stuff. You have an expert that's doing it for you. So anyway, it, it just bothered me. I was like, why, why is this not an asset class that people could put money into? So I started asking lots of questions. I got very passionate about it and I started digging really deep and then I became frankly, obsessed. And uh, we just got through this process, Taking a long time. We just got um, regulatory, well, uh, yeah, approval and a a clear path to the fund structure that we're proposing. So our next step is to actually go through the full process, build out the tech, and we want to launch
1: later this year. Wow, that's really cool. Also, I think a really cool thing that um, this will do is if I go out and angel invest in companies, um, and I have come to this realization after spending some time in the industry that probably one of the most important things for an investor should be good quality deal flow, right? Uh, a good quality deal flow will essentially minimize your chances of losing all your money. Like you mentioned, um, diversification and investing into multiple companies does that. Um, even if I'm investing into 30 companies, I have a really high chance if the deal flow quality is really bad. So I think, um, pooling money and investing into private equity using um, a fund is, is it's a really cool thing to do. Uh, in India, actually, the, the regulation does not allow so. So it's, it's a similar um, sort of scenario here in mm-hmm. India. But I think this is this is really cool. So I want to talk the next thing I want to talk about is um, relatively, this is a newer asset class, like you mentioned, a lot of people mm-hmm. think about it, but haven't really invested in it because they do not understand the nuances of it. So how did you go about explaining this to people who haven't really invested in startups or are they not your target um, sort of target investors? So can you talk some more about that?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and you're right, you know, um, this is a newer asset class. However, you know, there's been a lot of preparation, you know, happening in the general markets to help people understand what this asset class is and the fact that it's interesting. I mean, I'll thank Shark Tank, you know, every day of the week, you know, like, I I almost can't watch the show because the deals are just so egregious at times that I'm like, what are you doing with your business? But I mean, (laughs) but, you know, the the whole notion of that show, right, and what it means to pitch an investor and investors taking a stake. And, you know, that that's really normalized the discussion a lot. Um, Plus, publications like TechCrunch and, you know, and all these other ones make it, have brought the tech community to a, a public level, right? That's really interesting. Plus, just success of all the big tech companies, right? Uh, I was just laughing the other day. Um, I graduated in 2011 with my MBA. And at the time, the hot companies to go work for, I mean, it it was like GE and ExxonMobil. These these were all the big companies, you know, like these tech companies like Apple and Google and Amazon, all these guys, they weren't even in the top 10 at the time. You know, so since then, I mean, these companies have just taken over the world. They're front and center. Everyone knows that tech is where it's going, and they they've heard and understood the stories of how they got started, right? So there's been a big spotlight put there. So you're right that they may not understand the nuances of it, but they understand the market, and that's where you know there's going to be a trust game that we have to build, where we we you know build a bridge to help people cross that chasm and say, you know, you like this market, you know, you want to be here, but you're not confident enough to make the decisions on your own. So come across the sweater bridge, we'll manage it for you and give you lots of transparency and give you that, you know, that you know, front row experience on the field, right? Without you having to make all the decisions and worry about it at night.
1: That's really, that's really, really cool. I mean, now that I think of it, um, as an investor who is um, still hesitant of investing as an angel investor because of the kind of involvement the he or she wants and um mm-hmm. on the other side there is lp commitment which i might not be able to make because of uh, the restrictions that they have right the accreditation right. the minimum amount of capital that we need to do so this sort of really fits into that gap in the market which is what is kind of really cool um so jesse getting into a little bit of detail are you looking to do equity plus venture debt uh, in the future or is it only going to be equity forever <laughs>
0: Well, I, I can't speak what forever might might hold. <laughs> Let's say that the uh, there there will be a lot of options eventually, right? So the way that our fund will work is it's open ended, um, so it's kind of like a rolling fund if you're familiar with that concept, yeah. which basically means if you contrast <laughs> it with the traditional fund, you know they're going to go out and raise a hundred million dollars, right? So if I as, as an LP put a million dollars in, then I'm going to get one percent of distributions, right? with nuance. <laughs> but with ours, it, it's it's there's not a limit, right? We can put in uh, 50 million, 500 million, 5 billion, 500 billion, and we can just keep adding to the pot forever. So it creates a bit of a different dynamic there. Um, but within that, right, eventually what we'll want to do is start having more focus. So out of the gates, w- we love early stage tech, right? So we're going to create kind of a bell curve around a series A, right? So mostly series A, some seeds, some series B, um, and, you know, focused around kind of consumer touching technology experiences, right? Where we can reasonably be able to touch on that. Um, but in the future, we may be able to break away from that, right? And we might be able to create a fund that's only for biotech, right? So you could put your money over here into the, the technology fund or you could do biotech or here's the clean tech one, right? Or here's the venture debt, right? And all of them will have different profiles, risk profiles and timelines and all that kind yep. of stuff. Um but we could give people options. So eventually we will do that. Out of the gates, I mean, I'm thinking like years. For the first years, we will be focused on early stage tech.
1: Got it. Got it. Um, Next question comes back again to DealFlow. How does a fund like yours, because you are starting off, and for relatively new fund managers, DealFlow is, is uh, a little bit tough but also sort of uh, challenging in the sense that you go out there you are a new fund manager people sort of trust you a little more especially early early stage guys so how how would you make sure that you get really cool deals
0: absolutely if you don't make good if you don't get good deal flow and make good investments then the whole thing will fall apart That's rule number one. It doesn't matter how much money we can raise from the public. If we don't do a good job investing, then it's all over. And we know that. And we don't underestimate how hard it is to find good deals. Um, So there there are a few things that we're looking at as we break into the market to help um, make sure that we do that out of the gates immediately. Um, One is that we will co-invest alongside other VC funds. That will be an instant validator for us. And so we're already building those relationships. So when we launch, we know that we have this suite of partnerships when they move money we'll move money with them and we'll do a lot of that out of the gates um but in in the medium term and the long term we'll definitely lead our own deals so if you think about our position and how we'll be in market compared to most vc funds most vc funds are pretty quiet right they might have a blog you know or something like that but for the most part they don't do marketing where us on the other hand i mean we're direct to consumer we're going to be spending a lot of money to get in front of the public and we'll be in the public eye so we don't expect there to be a problem with us attracting deal flow and, and having people reach out to us. We also know that we'll have a lot of unqualified deal flow that comes in and we have plans to make sure we can funnel them to the right area. Because like I said at the beginning, I have a lot of passion for helping founders at every level of the entrepreneurial experience, right? So if they reach out and they're like, hey, I'm opening you know, a cool bakery, be like, that's great. Here's some resources to help you with that. Here's classes we have or whatever because we can't invest in a bakery because the math doesn't work. Right. Um, But, you know, with that, we've had a lot of feedback from founders saying that, you know, if, if sweater was lined up with a lot of other VC funds, we would probably pick sweater because we know that who your LPs are. We know who your backers are regular people. And if we win, we want them to win, you know, like these guys are great, but we don't care if that rich guy gets richer, you know? And so we know that we're going to attract a lot of people that, um, are aligned with our mission and that, you know, want to be kind of part of the people's fund, so to speak, and have that be a part of their ecosystem and, and, and what they want to do. And when you look at everything that's happening this week with GameStop and, you know, all these Redditors that are beating up on Wall Street, it's that same sentiment, you know? It's yeah. that sentiment of like, you know, they're the big guys, right? They get access to everything. And, you know, so that, that seed is being planted, that kind of discontent, say, is being yeah. planted in the hearts of millions of people and I think that our, you know, whether you want to put money into Sweater as an investor or whether you want to take money from Sweater as a founder, it's all running off that same kind of discontent.
1: That's that's brilliantly put, uh, Jesse. A quick question: <laughs> Do you think uh, yeah. venture investing is more marketing than finance? <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: let's let's put it this way: um, nobody can see the future. I don't care how smart you are; you can be informed. Right. But it's like, you know, all all the respect to the people at Andreessen, very smart people. Right. But it's like, you know, if they if they're smart enough and deep enough into a market to to say that they are the the premier experts in the world. Right. I would say something like this. That means they know 10 percent of what might happen in the future, whereas some other fund manager might only know three percent. Right. So they're smarter, but they still only know 10 percent of what could potentially happen. The vast majority, in my opinion, of making a great portfolio is deal flow and quality of deal flow. And that's where the Andreessen's, the Sequoia's, the Benchmarks, the Index, all these guys, right? Their reputation precedes them and that is their marketing, right? It's word of mouth, which is the best kind. And so they see the best deals. So I could almost guarantee you, if you took the qualified deal flow that Andreessen has and you took those same deals, and you handed it to a fund manager in Colorado that never would have seen those deals, and you let that fund manager in Colorado pick which ones he thought would be the winner, guarantee you he'd make a pretty darn good portfolio just because of the quality of the companies, right? So to your point about marketing, I I do believe that it's it's more about marketing than it is about finance. You know, it's it's about getting into good deals and the good deals will make themselves, right? It, it's not, there's, there's not some magic sauce, you know, like you, you you need to be able to differentiate. Like, Don't don't get me wrong. You got to be able to tell if a deal is a bad deal. But when you see just lots of good deals, it's much easier to do it, right? So the game is harder for small unknown funds because they got to filter through a lot more unqualified stuff that they don't know if it's unqualified. So I, I do think that there's something there that's different from the 90th percentile funds and everybody else and what they have to sort through.
1: Absolutely, and I think I think smaller funds also they need to filter out more stuff, and they also need to get a seat at the table for the for the good deals. I think, right? Because there is mm-hmm. more money chasing very few deals, essentially the good deals. And I think if you can get yeah, exactly. a seat at that table, I mean that's that's brilliant,
0: awesome. Oh yeah, well, and that's one of the things that we talk about a lot, right? It's mm-hmm. it's um, you know our our belief is that the venture ecosystem hasn't reached its full potential yet. You know, like it, it's created so much value in the world, right? And it's created some messes too, right? There's been a few messes out there. We work, <laughs> um, you know, but generally, it's created a ton of value, right? And um, and so it's good. But I also we firmly believe that there is just there are are you know it's like we're on level two or three out of ten, right? We can keep changing venture and growing it to a way that you know changes the way not just the way that we invest but the way that we take companies to market and and find what's successful and how we don't waste founders time having to just raise money all the time, right? Like to be able to make this whole thing better. Um, you know, and so we look at this just saying, you know, it's not a knock on anyone that's in the venture ecosystem right now. We, we want to elevate the whole thing. And, you know, we believe that it's, it's possible to have, um, you know, to create a new gravity point in the venture ecosystem is the way we like to think about it right we're not we're not here to destroy anybody or to disrupt or whatever we just we just want to elevate it you know and so if we can create you know we bring two things to the table as sweater right that that we believe are missing one is is retail investment right which is a fundamentally different thing and it changes like the way that our fund is structured changes the way that we will invest and move money compared to a traditional vc fund and i believe they're very positive differentiators but the second thing that's missing is retail involvement and engagement that's missing. I mean, right now, you know, when you get a, uh, an investment from a fund, you know, they might make a few connections for you, but then you gotta go out and you're fighting the battle, you know, one conversion at a time, and you're trying to crack the nut on this. And it's hard, it's really hard. And I mean, just imagine for a second, what it would mean for someone to get uh, an investment from sweater. Say we've got a million micro investors, right? And you know, we put money into a, a new consumer technology product. Well, we're not just gonna let these investors just sit there, right? <laughs> we're gonna yeah. turn around with this new company and say, hey, everybody, look, we made this awesome investment. You know, champion it. If, if it's good for you, buy the product, tell your friends, help get it into market, you know, and we can accelerate them through these early, very high risk stages in a different way with an audience that is vested in their success, right? And that, that right there, totally change everything. We got to build it,
1: but it's, it's a fundamental differentiator. That's really cool. I was going to come to that. So um, my next question is um, from a startup standpoint, it, like you said, it is really cool because they know who their LPs are. They know that these are, these are common retail investors. These are not um, pension funds. These are not uh, huge corporates and uh, the money is coming from um, among, among themselves, right? This is, this is sort of coming from uh, their peers, their colleagues, their families, right? And how does, how does that essentially change uh, from a startup standpoint? How does that change the game for them? How does um, raising money from a VC fund which has LPs as normal people compared to raising money from regular uh, traditional VC funds, other than the fact that they can, that they have a huge, huge marketing upside on it.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the marketing upside is great, but I think there are other elements too, right? I mean, some of the biggest challenges that, um, A, I think there are challenges that funds face, and then there are challenges that the founders face. So one of the biggest challenges that a fund faces is validating whether or not something is real. And the earlier stage the company is, the harder it is to do. Right. And that's just like coming down to like gut feel and like understanding the market. And that's why investors invest in things that they understand because their gut can guide them better because that's really all that they have to rely on. (laughs) So, something that we can do with our our network as well, right, is is use it for validation. And before we ever make an investment, you know, um, I mean, think about it like this it's like, you know, um, treat it like a CRM, right? So, we got a million people and we know. You know what their preferences are. We know what their hobbies are. We know where their passions are at. We know what they do for work and, you know, slice and dice that and be like, okay, well, you know, we're looking at this med tech product and we can go in and be like, okay, we've got 3,700 primary care doctors and we could send them a note and be like, Hey, how big of a problem is this for you? Like, really, you know, don't tell them about the company, just ask about the problem because that's what validation is, right? How, how, on a scale of one to 10, you know, is this painful or not? And if you could solve it with a magic wand, what would you do, right? And kind of get a feel for what people say and let that inform our decision about looking at an early stage company. So that helps, um, it helps the investor, but in turn, it also helps the company because they're getting real information in a scaled way, right? Um, uh, Some problems that that founders face as well, it's not just, you know, acquiring new customers, that's part of it, Um, but it's also um, hiring a team, right? like getting the right people to come in and, and build your team is hard to do. And so that's another thing that we'll be able to tap into our network and and be part of, you know, effectively a passive hiring process. And we can have people, you know, that have checked a box on their profile. It's like, yeah, you know, if you find a company that's in the SaaS industry in Utah, I want to be on the list, you know, and we we know who they are. We, we, you know, founders can go in and they have a curated list of people who are interested in leaving their job to go work at a SaaS company in the region that you're at. You know, and it's already there. Like, you know, they don't have to go hunting and, and sorting through all, all the people that may not be a good fit. So yeah. there's
1: there's interesting things that could be had there for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's really interesting, actually. While um, this opens up a lot of possibilities, my next question is around the kind of involvement this leads to um, for you guys as GPs of the fund. So raising from LPs is... Um, so on the LP side, I guess there are certain... Um, raising investing and reporting uh, standards and, and compliances that you have to do how different is, uh, are are these compliances and uh, these reporting mechanisms when you raise from retail investors, that's one. And secondly, Mm -hmm. um, is there going to be more involvement for you guys as GVs of the fund to um, sort of coordinate all these, all these activities that you are talking about?
0: Yeah, uh, totally. So first I, I'll just be direct and say I can't tell you about the the details of the fund until we're public. Um, so I can't get into all that. Uh, sure, but sure. what I can say is that as a uh, as as a public fund that can take money from retail investors, we are held to a higher standard. So, um, we do have compliance mechanisms and all that kind of stuff. Like we've already got a partnership worked out with yeah. Ernst & Young to be our mm-hmm. auditors. You know, like we're going to have a lot of transparency and make sure that everything is, you know, is, is being operated and yep. executed according to industry best standards right so best practices so like a we'll we'll be doing that so i can't talk about the other elements of the fund but we are held to a high standard and we intend to comply with it um you know in terms of like you know what we will be doing to operate all these moving parts um you know fundamentally we are we have a different motivation maybe maybe. i mean we, we have at least a motivation that's very strong um is that you know we're opening this up and we're doing this for retail investors right so um, we feel a strong loyalty to, to those that choose to take a risk and to want to be inside this world, um, which is why we want to do all these things. But it also means that I'm not in it to make a huge carry like a traditional fund would. And it's fine. I mean, that's, it's, it's not a knock on traditional funds, right? That's just been the setup. It's, it's been great. You know, it aligns interests. It does all kinds of things, right? It's good. Um, but for us, right, we look at it saying we want to take as much money that, that comes back in from management fees and whatever, to build a better ecosystem, you know, like much, I mean, like if you kind of think about it from Amazon's perspective, Amazon ran, ran on razor thin margins for 20 years until they finally got to a point where they had such a critical mass that they've exploded in the last yeah. four or five years. Right. And so I look at it like that. Like I'm not in it to make huge management fees in year three of managing this fund. You know, like we, we could easily get to billions under management and that's fine my intention is to take as much of that possible, put it back into technology, put it back into being able to nurture the ecosystem, to helping the founders find success and to creating this new gravity point, right? And I've got the long, long-term in view, right? So I'm looking at like the 10, 15-year horizon, not the three to five-year horizon.
1: Got it. That's, that's really cool. Um, so Jesse, um, without taking a lot of your time, one of my last few questions, and I think we we'll discussed this um, on the on the mail thread. So I'm I want to talk about ethics in venture capital, and a lot has been said about it. You lightly touched upon um, WeWork, and uh, we've seen ViaCard, WeWork, and more importantly, big VCs pouring money to help startups achieve vanity metrics. Right? You you um, lightly touched upon that as well. So. What do you think is essentially happening in the whole ecosystem? Do you think, do you think there is um, declining focus on ethics in venture capital from the founders as well as the, the VC side? Or do you think these are just a few outliers?
0: <laughs> no, it's, you raise a, a good topic and probably a sensitive topic. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that anyone, if you just ask them directly, you know, would say that they are acting unethically yeah um but that's the thing about ethics right is that it's a very blurry there's not even a line it's yeah. like <laughs> if it's a football field it's like the clear stuff is the end zones and the gray area is in between you know and it's like there, there's just so much gray area um and so i i don't know that there's an ethics problem but there might be a uh what's the word i want and uh, a motivation problem. Uh, I may not be saying that right, but like the the natural motives and an an incentive problem. That's the word I want. So I think that there might be an incentive problem. I mean, you look at venture capital before 2014 Mm -hmm. um, and you examine it, it's pretty reasonable. I mean, like venture capital got wild in in the late nineties, right? There was all kinds of frothy stuff. That was, that was crazy. Right. But between 2001 and 2014, it was reasonable and funds made good returns. And, you know, lots of companies were born out of that era that were very good companies. Um, and, and they really are the foundation of technology companies today. If you think about it, I mean, like sure, Google was founded in, you know, 98 or whatever, but they really didn't hit the, hit the market until after the crash. Um, so I, I think that I, I track it back to this whole focus on unicorns personally, right? It, it became well, well, like the original report, I can't remember the woman's name, but the, one of the GPs at Cowboy Ventures, I believe, was the one that made the original report about unicorns. It was in 2014. I remember when it, when it hit the wire and everyone was like, oh, unicorns, that's kind of funny. And you know, she identified like, like 35 unicorns or something like that. It wasn't even that many, I don't think. And you track what happened after that, right? And unicorn became this new, I mean, really a mythical creature, right? It's like this mythical line yes. of success for both founders and investors right every time that an investor would go to raise a new fund they were being held to this benchmark of well what unicorns do you have in your portfolio who's going to become a unicorn right so there's this inherent pressure to get one of those in your portfolio so the natural thing to do is to give up on on uh on your valuations right And inflate things a little bit, and I don't—I really don't think that it's like, hey, you know, I'm desperate; I need to get a unicorn in my portfolio. But it's more like it's the excitement, like, oh, you've got the potential for this, and now you're, everyone's aiming for this new bar of being a unicorn when maybe they necessarily shouldn't be. Not necessarily, you know, they not—they shouldn't necessarily be a unicorn, but everyone's pushing them in that direction, right? So now we've got like four hundred unicorns or something, whatever. They've all been birthed in the last five or six years, and should they all be there? Maybe. You know, like, are they really valued at that? I think they could be, Um, but the game has changed now, right? That this whole uh, growth stage venture capital has emerged that is really being able to fund companies from this 500 million, you know, because I mean, usually companies wouldn't get a funding round past a few hundred million in valuation because everybody knew that you couldn't really get acquired, right? And no one was IPOing. So it was all about acquisition. You go above that line and you couldn't get acquired. Which you're seeing now, like with this Visa situation, right? Visa goes in to acquire Plaid, and the regulators are like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Plaid's too big. This is this is anti-competitive." But if, if they had bought Plaid when they were worth 500 million, it would have been fine, yeah. right? So it's like it, th- there are a bunch of conflicts going on, and I think that there's a fair amount of ego there, uh, and, and that ego is is founders wanting to have that that status. It's you know investors, uh, the GPs that want to have it in their portfolio. It's the LPs that want the return profiles. you know. So there's a lot going on there. And I don't think that it's all bad. Not all unicorns are bad. I, I wouldn't say that. I, I bet there are many that are unqualified, but it has shifted the market. And from an ethics perspective, certainly there are some unethical players out there. There always are. But I, I think that by and large, most are, they're playing to the incentives that have been put in place. Um, so they, they wanna play the game.
1: That makes a lot of sense. My last question to you, Jesse, is, is there really a need within uh, VCs? So within your company, within Spetter, um, do you really put a lot of focus on values, on, on the culture, on the values? And do you take out time to sort of define what values would be for you and your investors?
0: Oh, hundred percent. I'm actually writing it right now. And rule number one is it's founders are first mm-hmm. every single time. You know, I mean, founders are the top of the stack, right? Our job is to not take advantage of founders. Uh, It's to help founders to reach their potential, to build their dreams, um, to remove barriers and to help them achieve, you know, everything that that their dream entails, you know, but there's lots of other elements there. Like something else that's very important to me is um, uh, empathy with entrepreneurs, right? And to me, the only way you can really get empathy, you can't read about something and get empathy. You have, you have true empathy by experiencing something. So something that's really important to me as we build this is, especially with people that are making decisions around investments, is that they've either built companies or worked in, in startups before. So they understand what that founder that they're making a decision on is really going through and have that be part, a big part of the equation. I don't want a trust fund kid that's you know grew up with a BMW when he turned 16 to come in and be making decisions about founders. I mean, power to them, that's great. They, they worked their way into a fund. Their dad pulled some strings, whatever. That's great, right? Go run your fund. But I don't want that attitude in our funds. You know, I want that empathy, that alignment with the founders. And at the end of the day, right, that our, our it's, it's really our founders and it's our retail investors are number one, right? We're never going to do anything that hurts them on purpose, right? Everything that we do has got to keep them in mind while also playing the venture game, right? And this is a risky game. And that's something we have to put front and center. Like you look at the way our signup workflow works right now, right? And we are, you know, we're forcing acknowledgement on this process and the risks involved in several places before we ever let anybody move any money. It's like, I'm not going to assume that you go read the fine print in this 200 page prospectus that the SEC approved. Like, no way. I'm going to tell you about this thing, this thing, and this thing. And if you're not okay with that, then don't put money in, right? Because it is a risk. And at the end of the day, like we've got it, we play, we have to play an aggressive game. You've got to get in the best deals. You've got to grow companies if you expect to get the venture math to work and we need to play that game. So we're not going to be passive, but at the same time, we do have to keep them in mind and not do stuff that's stupid. Yeah. Right. So um, we're articulating all that right now, but for us, it's extraordinarily important. Um, I mean, just like, you know, real briefly to look at what's happening to Robinhood right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how close you're following that, but. Everyone's saying it's not, they're not Robin Hood. They're the <laughs> Sheriff of Nottingham. They're, they're in, you know, in cahoots uh, up in the castle tossing yeah. gold coins around the room yeah. while everybody outside the castle walls is getting screwed. Mm. And, you know, I, like, it's, it's a little bit of a conspiracy because they're denying everything, yeah. but it's, it's the optics, right? It's the timing. It's the, why didn't you do it three days earlier? Yeah. Had you never thought about this situation before? Like, it's like best case, it's inconvenient timing Worst case, it's collusion, you know, and it's like they they took six years to build this brand and it all went away like that. Right. And people are still flocking there, you know. I'm sure they'll recover. But we're looking at that as a very strong lesson. We're working okay. with retail investors. We we've got to be on our game all the time. And we've got to think through these scenarios. We've got to expound on these risks. We've got to make sure everyone's cool with this stuff. Because one day, you know, we might end up with a we work in our portfolio. And it may not have been our decision. But that could happen, right? And the fact that we're invested in that company will reflect on us. And we we know that. And it's like, so what will get us through that is our relationship and our attitude at every moment along the way with our own investors saying and admitting, right? And saying these things could happen, right? Look at this, like, you know, and, and just being as transparent as possible. Because if we try to hide stuff or we try to be sneaky and hope that nobody notices and do a write down without telling people, I mean, that's BS, right? Like, Everyone's in the stadium. Everyone's gonna know what's going on, and yep. that's the way we want it. Ultimate transparency, radical transparency.
1: Awesome. That's that's really really cool. And um, I I wish you all the best for building Sweater. I'm I'm eagerly waiting now that um, I've had this chat with you. I'm, I'm waiting even more to take a look at the platform and and then and and and, uh, and the public release. Um, so all the best for that. And uh, congratulations you. for what you've built.
0: All right. Sounds great. Thanks so much for for inviting me in. This was a lot of fun.
1: Really fun. Thanks a lot. Take
0: care. Okay. Yeah. We'll be in touch. Okay. See ya.
1: Take care. Bye-bye. Stay safe.